If you will, go with me in prayer. I think I've been affected by the service. I'm thankful for Jesus. Uh, The words we just sang, that when he left heaven, his face was on Calvary. It was always the point of God to save us and to have us as his forever so that we might enjoy him and in doing so, glorify him. So this is the hour where we look to God's word and hear it explained, and we all need help, and especially me this morning. So let's go and ask God for that help. Father, our prayer is simple. Um, We're thankful to know our need, and so we come to you, our faithful God. Dig out our ears, open our eyes, enlighten our hearts to see Christ from your scriptures. Father, we need your help. Would you fill us with your spirit as we seek to focus and to understand and to believe your holy word? And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I've been reading Ed Welch's When People Are Big and God Is Small uh, with my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. And many of you might know that book. Near the beginning, he says, what you need or what you fear, will control you. So for instance, if you need the approval of others based upon how you look or how you talk, then you will live your life, right, controlled by what you wear and what you say. That would be the focus. That's how you live in your life because you're controlled by what you need because you need this approval, right? And along these lines, what you think about most often shows what you love or what you're infatuated with. And instantly, as you and I heard me say those words, we're kind of like, I'm filled with the fear of man, and I don't think about the holy word of God enough. I'm full of all other things. My life is so busy. I'm just, it's a million miles, and it's all kinds of different things. We all felt flustered even thinking about those words. Well, by the grace of God and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, the Christian life is one where God has written his word on our hearts. It is our meditation. And by the Spirit, it gives wisdom which produces godliness in us. This is the gift of salvation. This is sanctification. Jesus even prays for us in his high priestly prayer. And he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So you see, sanctification is a fact. It is who we are in Christ. And at the same time, although it is a fact, we are being sanctified through the Word, by the Spirit, and are therefore called to sanctify ourselves. But it's only when we see Jesus with this kind of sight that He is all that we need, He is all that we have, that sanctification begins. Our confession even says about sanctification, the beginning, this is uh, chapter 13, paragraph 1, those who are united to Christ and are effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. And they are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power, by his word and his spirit dwelling in them. And then the next paragraph, just a few sentences, chapter, uh, chapter 13, paragraph 2. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. 
Some corruption remains in every part of us. And from this arises a continual, irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And this is our life. This is the Christian life. And this is why the apostles pray things like in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If sanctification is going to happen, God must do it. This is clear. Especially when there remains so much corruption in us. This is why Paul says in Galatians, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And they're opposed to each other, keeping you from doing what you want to do. But because God is going to sanctify us, we hear words like this from Peter in chapter 2, 1 Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's talking to believers. He's talking to believers, to the church. Listen, you are God's. Salvation is yours. And because of that, fight the evil passions that wage war. And so that just brings me to, we're talking about today from uh, Psalm 119, which is all about the law of God, all about the word of God. And specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 97 through 104. And I want you to just notice, just high level, that there is a wisdom and an understanding that God's word gives when it's implanted, when it's written on the heart, that produces love for God and love for neighbor. It produces godliness. But it's a wisdom that only God produces in us through his word and spirit. It's his work. And so today, uh, before we read, I just want to give you the plan. I have two parts. The first part is just to really talk about big themes and some wonderful thoughts from Psalm 119 as a whole, thinking about the Word of God, thinking about the law of God. And then part two, I want us to understand our section of Psalm 119 and then apply it. How do we experience, how do we pray this and live this psalm in Christ Jesus? And when we get to part two, I have three points and I'll make all those clear when we get there. And so before we move any further, I'm going to read for us God's holy and inspired word. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every evil every false way. Amen. We praise God for his word today and every day. And so moving into part one, big themes and wonderful thoughts about Psalm 119 as a whole. 
The author did not identify himself when he wrote Psalm 119. Obviously, a lot of people think it's David for, for good reason. And then there's, there's lots of legends about how this was used. Maybe he taught Solomon, and that's why he wrote it in this alphabetic acrostic. He was teaching Solomon how to read and write. So he was using the alphabet while at the same time teaching him to love the law of God. That's a legend. We can't prove any of that. But this psalm is famous for its recitation of devotion to God's law and loyalty to the way of God. And it's a big prayer asking for strength to not stray from the way of God. And like I said, it is an alphabetic acrostic psalm, which explains why it's so long and why it has such a weird structure. So using the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each psalm is in a section with the subsequent Hebrew letter. And it's all about love for God's law, protection from evil, abstaining from evil, walking in the way of righteousness. And it's interesting, though, how he uses every piece of language to write a psalm about how good God's law is. And what I mean is every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is used to communicate, which is used to worship God with, which is used to talk, which is used to write, He's using language in order to cover the topic of God's law entirely. And in this way, language is a gift, right? What's the primary purpose of language? But to lead us to truth. Language was given so that we might form thoughts that come with the reality that we live in. In Genesis 2.19, for example, God makes creation and he tells Adam to name things. So he uses language to name the things that God designed and created in reality. So language is a gift that humans use to know truth. And God actually reveals the deepest part of reality through language. Well, what do I mean? Well, how do we know what reality is? God's testimony. He wrote it down. In, in language, he told us, in the beginning, I created it all. But even deeper than that, his word, God's revelation, is, is communicating to us the deepest parts of this created reality. I'm talking about holiness, sin, death, forgiveness, faith, love, eternal life. We know these things because God has communicated them to us. And the law of God, his eternal law, all of his revelation, it reflects his very being. It's not, not just the moral law, but even the plan of redemption. All of God's testimony reflects who he is. And in human terms, as it, it reflects his being, it all started in his mind, if you will. God thought it. God said it. So what is this thought level of God where all of this created? Well, it is his word. It's the eternal word who was with God in the beginning, who through whom the world was made. It's the eternal word who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. All of this is the point of life. And God had it written down for us. And this is the point of language to lead our thoughts to a knowledge of God. And he's done that through the Bible. This is the revelation of God. And it's the 
object of Psalm 119. So in understanding Psalm 119, came across this illustration, it may help you. Imagine a triangle, right? One point is God, one point is humanity, people, and one point is evil. And the revelation, the Torah of God is in the middle. And it's explaining things about all of that. It's just, God revealed things about himself to us through his revelation. He's telling us about ourselves. We're not like him. We ran away from him. We sinned. The fall happened. It's telling us about evil. Right? It's telling us about forgiveness. So maybe that helps you as you think about Psalm 119. And then it's, it's very interesting. There's eight words used for, for God's law in all of Psalm 119. And I want to go over them real quick because I think it gives us a bigger picture of why I just spent that time talking about all of God's revelation and not just the moral law. So the word law, of course, all of these words are a Hebrew word, and I'm using English words. So we've got to just kind of get over that hump and accept that part of what I'm about to explain. If, uh, so the word law is used 25 times, and it's speaking of instruction. Anything flowing from the revelation of God. It could be uh, very narrow, like specifically the Torah of Moses, maybe the, the Pentateuch, the, the priestly law, the Deuteronomy law. It could be that, or it could be more broad, like the entire law of God. The word word is used 24 times, and that's talking about a law or a promise, anything that flows from the, the mouth of God. And then there's the word laws, which is used 23 times in Psalm 119. Speaking of legal cases, it's the law of God specifically used for Israel's legal basis. Uh, but really what's, what's in view is the supreme judge who gives laws for all of the world. And then there's the word statutes. And it's used 23 times in our psalm. And it's speaking of uh, observing the statutes that God has given in a covenantal frame, in a in a covenant relationship. So it's talking about loyalty within a covenant, obeying the statutes. Then there's the word commands. It's used 22 times. This is a synonym of law, and it's referring to anything the covenant of God has ordered or decreed. There's the word decrees, used 21 times throughout Psalm 119. And it's referring to the way that God has revealed His sovereignty by establishing His divine will in nature, and in the covenant community. Moving on here, there's the word precepts, which is used 21 times, and this word seems to be synonymous with covenant. And so it's actions which pertain to keeping the covenant. So it's when we get the covenant instruction, these precepts, it's this language of, of guarding it, of responding to it, of loving it, of choosing it. I want, we're doing this with the precepts of God that he's given in covenant. And then lastly, there is the word, <clears throat> excuse me, there's the word promise, and it's used 19 times. And again, it's anything God has spoken, demanded, or promised. And so that really gets us, I think, to where we are today in verses 97 through 104. And so I want us to uh, realize in verses 97 through 100, it highlights how meditation and love of God's law results in a wisdom and an understanding. It gives, a, when the law of God on the heart by the Spirit is meditated upon, 
It gives understanding for what? Well, that's what the next verses answer. 101 and 104 is highlighting. This wisdom results in, provokes, produces a delight in obedience. That's what our psalm is about. It's a wisdom and it's an understanding that provokes and produces delightful obedience. And so that moves us on here to part two of today's sermon, which is understanding and experiencing this psalm. And so I have three points for us to consider in part two as we look directly at the text. Number one is that I'm going to give them all to you and explain a little bit here. Jesus is the substance of this psalm, of Psalm 119 and especially our uh, particular verses here. He is the substance. He is, Jesus is the divine word. He is God's word, definitive word. He's the eternal logos. And it and, and his word, his law, finds its yes and its amen in Christ. In Christ. And so he is the ultimate fulfillment of God's word, of God's law. So we have to know that, that he is the substance. We're going to talk about that. Point number two is that Jesus is the prayer of this psalm. Jesus is the prayer of this psalm. I will refer you to Justin's uh, most recent sermon in Psalms 1 and 2, where he goes over a lot of material about how Augustine in church history, they said this, that Jesus is the prayer of the Psalms. He is the singer, the primary singer of the Psalms. And Jesus as a human being is that singer of the Psalm. And then also what he said in Luke 24, 44, these are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And not only this, but 196 times, more than any other Old Testament book, the Psalms are used, quoted in the New Testament. So to sum that up, point one, Jesus is the substance of this psalm. And point two, Jesus is the primary singer of this psalm. And then point three, we're going to look at how this psalm applies to us and how we sing and pray this psalm in Christ Jesus. So you can just write how we sing and pray this psalm. In, in Psalm, in Christ Jesus. So, number one, Christ Jesus is the substance of this psalm. All that God has to say is summed up in Christ Jesus. Everything that God has to say is abbreviated. His word abbreviated, as the Latin fathers used to say, is Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, in whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus is the eternal logos. He's the definitive word of God. And so the moral law, the civil law, the priestly law, the Psalms, and the prophets are fulfilled in him. They are shadows of, pointers to, types of, fulfilled in Jesus. Even in Psalm 19, I'm going to quote a few verses here. He is the promise that gives life. He is the word that's sweeter than honey. He is the word that gives light. He's the point of history. He is the point of history. We just said that God revealed his, the point of reality, right? God created reality and had it written down. What is, what is reality? What is true? What is real? He had it written down for us. And what is the point of it? Jesus. Jesus is the point. 
This is the purpose of life itself, to know God in Christ Jesus. He is the truth. Christ is the truth, which all truth finds its purpose. And so what is God's truth, God's law calling us to? We confess it today. To be holy as God is holy. But what does it show us? We're not holy. We're not holy. So God has had his revelation written down to show us, fallen sinners, that we are not like him. And for Old Testament believers, it reminded them not to hope in themselves, but to trust God's promise of a redeemer and keep his law as his chosen people. And the sacrificial system and the priesthood, it all pointed to this redeemer who would come. It reminded them to do what God said was good and to not do what God said was bad. The law is telling us what, what is good, right? God said, this is good, pursue it. And in fact, things are good because he said so. He is goodness and, and all of his words create. He said, let there be light and there was light. He said, this is good, it's good. He is goodness. And if the one who is the place that goodness finds its measurement says, this is good, maybe we should trust him. This is good. And if he, God, said, this is bad, believe him. It won't end well. It is bad. You know, our problem is not that the law is bad. <clears throat> I think sometimes we fall under this assumption is because the law condemns us and shows us we're not worthy, we think, ah, oh, the law is so bad. No, we are bad. We are bad. The law is good. It's a reflection of God's goodness. And it shows us we are not good. It says you're unrighteous. And it judges you unfit for fellowship with God. Who is the ultimate source of all goodness. Who is goodness in and of himself. Our creator, our maker, our sustainer. We cannot fellowship with him because we're bad. We're not good. We would disintegrate. But the law is good. The entire revelation of God's word is so good and it's only good. And as we move closer to the text, this is what I want you to understand. You have heard what God has said and you believed it. And you have believed it. You agreed by the power of God that you are unfit and that your only hope is the one who kept the law for you. God has been merciful to you, saints. You believe his word. And knowing what God has said through the power of the Holy Spirit, enlightening, enlightening our eyes and digging out our ears, and to see and to hear Jesus, this is the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of wisdom. To believe God when he says, you are not good. To believe God when he says that I am holy. And to see the problem there. And to run to Jesus. This is the beginning of wisdom. And all of us believers, brothers and sisters, we have heard Jesus say, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened from the weight of your sin and unholiness and unrighteousness, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. I'll give you my yoke. No longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. 
And hearing Jesus brings us to the next truth. We should hear Jesus praying this psalm. He is the prayer of the entire Psalter. And he prayed this psalm as the only perfect one. And he prayed this psalm as the perfect one in our place. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus had to be made like us. His brothers and had to be made like us, his brothers and sisters, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people, of his people. And so as the anointed one, Jesus became human and he prayed the Psalms. Hebrews 5, 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. The father heard every prayer he cried, every psalm that he prayed and sung and cried and in praise to the father. The father heard because of his reverence. Because he was perfect and he was in the flesh, he put on weakness, although he never sinned, and he did that in our place. Right? And unlike Adam, Jesus didn't exploit his deity for self-interest to avoid pain at the expense of his people. It says Philippians 2 that though he was in the form of God, he did not account, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not only this, but Luke tells us that Jesus on earth, he increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with man. He put on flesh and he grew. He suffered obedience. He suffered the weight of keeping the law perfectly in a weak flesh, in a weak and vile flesh for us. Did he sin? Absolutely not. But he wrapped himself in humanity, in our weakness. And he grew and developed and grew in wisdom. And he was the one who perfectly meditated on the law of God day and night. The law was, was in his heart. Let's look at verses 97. He was the one who, he sang this. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. It is in me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditations. And you can even think here, about him going into the synagogue, reading Isaiah, saying it's fulfilled in your sight. And they're like, you're crazy. 100. He says, I understand more than the aged. I keep your precept. He revered and loved God perfectly. And therefore, God heard his prayers. And he's saying, I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way so that I will keep your word. And I don't turn aside from your rules. Why? Because you have taught me. You, oh Father, you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Imagine Jesus on earth suffering the weight of obedience, clinging to every word his Father ever said, clinging to the law, Loving it. It's sweet to his taste. 
And he says, through your precepts, I get understanding. And therefore, I hate every false way. Brothers and sisters, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And in fact, Jesus is called the amen in Revelation 3, verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write this, The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Those are all names of Jesus. Jesus is naming himself. And then he goes on to write to the church in Jesus' name. He is, Jesus is our amen. Let it be. He is our amen to the Father. He walked the earth with full resolve to do all of God's will. We didn't. We haven't. He knew what it was for God to be his shepherd in his shield, in his refuge. He knew the high praises of life and the low depressions of life. And he was the faithful servant of God. And he is the one who longed for God perfectly. Who hungered for righteousness perfectly. And he meditated on the law of God day and night and he loved it. And he kept his feet from the path of evil continually. And he loved God the Father, and he loved his neighbors, and he loved his enemies, as we read from Matthew 5, personally, perfectly, and totally. Jesus did this for you and me. He knew, as the Psalms say, of the foes trying to set traps and snares for him. He knew what it was for enemies to be plotting for his death. So he praised the Psalms to his Father. And in fact, we were a part of his enemies. We were a part of that crowd yelling, crucify him. We were the lawbreakers for whom he kept the law perfectly. We were the sinners whose sins he confessed to the Father. We were the ones deserving of judgment. And we were the ones in whose place that he was crushed by the Father. And we were the ones for whose justification he was raised. And by faith alone, all of that is ours. And that's why we're sitting here today, hearing God's revelation read, sung, and explained over us today. He prayed this psalm because he emptied himself. He put on flesh and he represented us. And he finished what he came to do. And because he finished what he came to do, you and I, we can pray and live this psalm. And so now we're going to, in great detail, look at this psalm. So in verses 97 and 98, I want you to see the image here, right? How I love your law. It's my meditation all day. And your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I want you to see the image of Jeremiah 31, 33. God says, for this is the covenant that I will make with Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you see this language? Your, it, your commandments make me wise for they're ever with me. They're ever with me. 
In Christ Jesus, we no longer look at the law outside of us as a slave master saying, do this and live, and we fail, and we fail, and it condemns, and it says death. It's no longer that for us, brothers and sisters. It's been placed, written on our new hearts. It's been written on our new hearts, and we now have the Spirit and the Word of God within us working. Oh, how I love your Word. God, how I love your testimonies. How I love your ways. How I love you. How I love your law and how I love your gospel. You see, the difference between a saint and a sinner is more than something objective. or It is objective. It's more than appearance. The difference between a saint and a sinner has more to do with a fact than it does appearance. You see, the saint loves the law of the Lord. And a sinner hates it and actually rebels against it. Which is why we hated God. Because His law said, you're not holy. It's Romans 1 and 2. You see, the saint has tasted the sweetness of the Word of God. Christ for you. Therefore live. But the sinner hates the law. And in fact, the things of the gospel is foolishness. But you see, the author of the law is God. He is divine. His word is divine. And in marvelous grace, he has used his law and his gospel to make us partakers of this divine nature. And so we show up here every week to love and to cling and to, to hold dear the law of God, the word of God. We show up here every week with one another, locking arms around Christ Jesus to hear God's law and to hear God's gospel and to hold it in our hearts. And so when we see each other at the grocery store, you swing by the office, we're addressing one another. What? In psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. Keeping the word of God in our hearts. Right? Because you need it. You need me to put the gospel in your ears. And I need you to remind me of what's good. I need you to be reminding me not to go there, to refrain from this. We need each other to be doing it. It is good for us, saints. It's good for us. It says that in verse 99 here, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Your testimonies are my meditation. And then also in verse uh, 100, I understand more than the aged. So right here he says, wiser than my enemies, understanding more than my teachers, and understanding more than the aged. I don't know if, if, if these people were, were teaching him the Bible or, or you know, teaching him the Torah or not. It doesn't seem like they had any, um, any reserve to, to keep the precepts of the Lord. He's like, I have more understanding than the age, verse 100. Why? Because I keep your precepts. Seems like this kind of things didn't matter to whoever's teaching him, especially his enemies, right? So here's the point. When God's law, for you and me, saying, God's law has been written on our hearts. And by the power of the Spirit, it gives us wisdom to walk in the way of the Lord, to walk out righteousness, to actually love God and to actually keep his law. Imperfectly, but really, we pursue good. Your commandment makes me wiser. It gives me understanding so that I keep your precepts. And then in verse 100, it says, I hold back my feet from every evil way. Why? In order to keep 
your word, in order to keep your word. And then the next verse, kind of a similar thing here. I hold back my feet from every evil way. No, sorry. So 101 and 102. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word, and I do not turn aside from your rules. Why? For you have taught me. So how in the world might we love the law of God? How would it become our meditation? How will we keep our feet from evil? How will we learn what it is to to not turn aside from his rules? He has taught us. He's placed his spirit and his word inside of us. And then also, verse 104, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Do you love the law of the Lord, brother and sister? Do you hold back your feet from every evil way? Do you seek to not turn aside from God's rules? Is His word sweet to your taste? Well, instantly you're thinking about, no, not like it should. That's not what I'm asking. The fact is you do love God. You do love His precepts. You do aim to keep your way from evil. You do aim to pursue good. And when you don't, repent. Repent. Do good. Refrain from evil. We are forgiven of all sin. And you do love the law of God. But then when someone asks you, hey, is the law of God your meditation? Instantly, uh, you know, Justin said this in his Psalm 1 and 2 sermon. Instantly, we're thinking about personal time and, and our personal devotions. Do you meditate on the law of God? And it's more than that. It has a bigger scope than our personal devotional time in the morning or the afternoon or whenever you do it or, or don't do it. It's more than that. It is reflecting on the Word of God day and night in all of our activity. It's meditating on the law so that we might perpetually respond to life in a way that accords with the Scriptures. It is training our heart to think and to act and to respond with wisdom in all that we do. We're agreeing with God about our sin, about life, about each other, and we're living accordingly. This is what it is. It's a way of life. This is the life we've been brought into because the Word is a lamp and a light. And so here's the dilemma. As we seek to do that, we make all kinds of mistakes. We get in these seasons of of depression or or just these seasons of habitual sins or or these seasons of of great anxieties or or these seasons of whatever, and and we just make mistakes. and And then we feel like we've got to dig ourselves out of this hole in order to be loving God and His law and each other. Well, James 3, 2 says that we all make all kinds of mistakes. First John says, if anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself. You're a liar if you say that. So the problem isn't that you still have cor- corruption in you. That's a given. That's a given. And that's why all of the New Testament is full of admonishments. Because of this corruption still exists. Run from sin. And when you do sin, confess it, because you've got to advocate with the Father. But I keep sinning. Keep confessing. 
Keep running to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Keep looking to his law, which is good for you. It says do this and don't do that. This is the way we live. I'm in a bad season. Welcome to life. You'll probably be in a good season later. And then you'll be back in a bad season. Welcome to life. None of us are going anywhere. We have each other. And this is why we have to prioritize this gathering and prioritize keeping the word in our heart, sharing it with our brothers and sisters. Hey, man, let me just, let me just talk about Jesus for a little bit because it seems like we're both complaining about everything on planet Earth. Hey. So in Christ... We are watchful and we're vigilant, right, to hold back our feet from every evil way. This isn't a burden. This is good for us. You've been brought from death to life. Avoid evil. And you're not doing it to earn something. You're doing it because you're free, because you're God's kid. You're a slave to the living God who died and rose again to save you. So are you aware of this, beloved? Are you aware of the fact that you have freedom from your selfishness? You have freedom that although yesterday you were totally thinking about the kingdom of self and mad about the dishes and mad about whatever you had to do for your spouse and mad about the way that you popped off you know, at your kid or mad about this, repent in the very moment. Pursue good. Right? This is the way we live. Apologize in front of your spouse. Apologize in front of your kids. Like, we're living every moment in light of what's good because we've been brought from death to life. No fear of judgment. The only fear is your own, really, because we're so full of, the king, of, of self and we want to just be so right. It's hard to apologize in front of our family. It's hard to apologize. It's hard to forgive when we want our spouse or our, our friend who hasn't pursued us like we think they should or who hasn't done what we think they should. We just harbor this bit. Repent. There's no, there's no sense in holding on to it. You're free, beloved. And here's the thing. Some of us get in these seasons where it's like, yeah, we've held on to bitterness for weeks. Or we've held on to, to this for too long. Again, repent. In this very moment, put down the heavy chains. Christ Jesus is your freedom. doesn't matter how long you've been in some crazy season. Right? We just we think this way. I've been in this hole for so long, now I've got to do some stuff to get myself out. That's not it. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. What does the Lord say? Let's just run from our falsehood. I'm trying to finish up here, but you know, we easily, again, we easily jump into legalism when we start talking like this, because we think, well, if I don't do that good enough, or what if I <laughs> but no. In the gospel, the law no longer makes demands upon you as a condition for salvation. It, it's not, you're not even in that economy anymore. You cannot earn with God. You can't, the only thing you can earn is His judgment. You cannot earn His favor. It is given. And beloved, it's been given to you. This is what we come here every week to try to understand because we forget it and we don't believe it. He's given it to us in Christ Jesus. And so this is why 2 Peter 1 says to keep pursuing these things. Keep pursuing these things, 2 Peter 1, so that you might be effective and fruitful in the church and for the cause of Christ. You are free. Your life is much bigger than you. We're going to spend eternity together in heaven. 
And you got the joy of serving your family, of serving each other, of not being so concerned with you. Because from start to finish, we have hope. From the start of our redemption, to the end, from the start of salvation to the end of our lives, we have hope because Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the alpha and omega of all of reality. He's the beginning and the end of our salvation. And faith in Christ is an act that imputes the whole Christ to us. It's not just His forgiveness and now you keep the law and love the law good enough. No. Forgiveness and holiness and redemption is ours. The whole Christ is imputed to us by faith. And we are going to grow, beloved. It's a promise. We're going to grow into Christ our head until we attain full assurance and until we attain fullness of life when we see him face to face. And this is a gift of grace. Justification produces sanctification. If I have to sum up all of what I was trying to do today, is to see this. Justification produces sanctification by the powerful working of the Spirit in our lives. And it all depends on God's faithfulness. We read that, that, that benediction, He who is faithful will do it. He, he will do it. And this is why it's like, listen, God is faithful. He's going to do it. And so because you have this remaining corruption, man, be vigilant. Because if, you if you're not vigilant, yeah, you'll easily end up down the road of like, oh my gosh, what happened? My life is a mess. Because you're not even thinking about the path that your feet is on. This is the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus to consider our ways. Consider our ways. Where are we headed? And ask somebody for help. Got a church full of people. Ask somebody for help. Sacrifice your time for each other. This is wisdom. This is the outflow of wisdom. It's a freedom in Christ Jesus that causes us to love each other. Consider our ways. I heard one pastor, I should probably conclude, but I heard one pastor say this. This is the prayer of wisdom. Father, keep me kept. Keep me kept. And you are kept in Christ, beloved. He's going to keep you that way. Let's pray.